you have a Bible, please open with me to Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2. And um, as we did last week, we've just got a couple verses before us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And we're going to look at this under the title of the urgency of obedience. We'd say the urgency of godliness. We live in an age where everything is seemingly urgent. The news cycle runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Everything, by the nature of how life operates, is, is given this idea of being urgent. You must know everything when it happens, so we think, so we feel. The advancement of technology between TV and the internet and the internet-capable smartphone has all aided in this and just it, it blasts our minds with the idea that all news, all knowledge is urgent. But as we come to this passage of Scripture, what we see is that the Lord has in mind something that is truly urgent, and that is obedience. That is godliness. Godliness in the face of of an evil, perverse, crooked, and hateful world. So let's look to our text. I'll ask that you stand with me as we read God's holy word. And let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now let's go before the Lord's throne of grace in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your throne of grace. Lord, you dwell in inapproachable light, and yet you tell us that we come boldly before your throne of grace because we come clothed in the blood and the righteousness of Christ. So we come now, Lord, and we have really but one request that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would illuminate our minds as to the truth. Lord, would you search us? Would you know us? Would you reveal to us if there's any sinful or grievous way in our hearts or in our lives? And would you lead us in the everlasting way, the way of repentance? Lord, would you... Help us, there is so much that goes on day to day and week to week in our lives. Would you help us to take just this short period of time to put aside all of those things and to give our devoted attention to the truth of your word? Lord, for these are not the words of mere men but the words that men penned carried about by the power and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Lord, your word is meant for our sanctification. 
for our growth, that we would put off sin and put on Christ. So would you help us, Lord, by the power of the Spirit to hear and to receive and to apply the truth. Lord, would you strengthen and bind up our weaknesses? Would you cover over our sinfulness? Would you captivate us with Christ? Help us, O Lord, to fix our eyes upon Christ, who is our great prize. Lord, would you turn our eyes upon Jesus? Lord, your word says that we are set apart to be a people for your own possession, for the sake of your glory. And would you, by your word, cause us to walk in a way that glorifies you more and more each and every day. We desire to be a people who honors you, and so we ask that you would make this time profitable for our correction and our reproof and our training in righteousness. And we ask all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we look at the text before us today, there's, there's a primary thesis. There's a primary idea that we see, and that is that we must urgently wage war against the flesh. We must wage war, war against the flesh and obey, obey Christ because as we obey, God is glorified in us, and God often does a particular work for his glory when his people walk in obedience. Obedience absolutely matters. And when you hear a sermon title like this, The Urgency of Obedience, your mind may immediately depending especially upon maybe your past in churches, go to this concerned state of, oh no, are we about to hear this rigorous legalistic idea about how we must obey so that we can be saved? And the answer to that is absolutely not. That is not what the scriptures say. That's not what this passage says. This passage has a very clear purpose, and it shows that we are must urgently obey because God is glorified and God works through the obedience of his people. We are called to obey for the Lord's glory and because the Lord uses that as instruments as he calls sinners to himself. As we get to the end of verse 12, I think that's what we'll see in the interpretation of this text is that the Lord uses the obedience of his people to call sinners to himself. So our obedience in so many ways is urgent. The call to godliness is urgent. Now this passage is kind of a transition. Peter's introduction, his first point kind of merged together back from chapter 1 verse 1 all the way through verse 10 of chapter 2. And now we kind of transition into the body of his letter. And he has begun by telling us of our great hope in Christ. He was writing to saints who were suffering for their faith and said, Dear saints, stand firm because you have a fixed hope in Christ. But now as we move forward, as we move into the second heading of this epistle, we see this idea about how Christians must live before the world. 
we see the importance of godly living before a lost and dying world. Peter is going to write about how we must honor authorities, how we must submit in suffering. He writes about how husbands and wives are to love one another. He writes about how the saints are to fervently love one another. He tells us that we must stand and defend and proclaim the gospel. The truths that we will see for a good part of the rest of this letter regard how we live out our faith before the world. And so thinking about this text, really there's a single question that we want to ask, and we'll see some answers as we work through these two verses. The question is, why is obedience so urgent? Why does Peter literally say, I urge you to walk here ultimately in what is godliness? And the answer we'll see is that the flesh wars against us, the world hates us, and the Lord is glorified in us as we walk in obedience. So let's look then at verse 11 and see this idea that the flesh wars against us. Peter begins by saying, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Now what does Peter begin with in this exhortation? In this urging, he begins with the word beloved. Beloved. This instruction was obviously urgent. It was of utmost importance. It was in a day where the Christian faith was not easy. And yet Peter begins with the point to make that these are his beloved saints in the Lord, his, his co-heirs with Christ. And there's a lesson for us to learn in that. When you think about instructing or exhorting or encouraging or correcting a fellow saint, dear friend, we must make time for warmth and kindness and love. The urgency of your message, nor even the authority of your message, gives you grounds to speak the truth without love. In fact, I think we could go as far as to to say that if you cannot address a fellow saint in love with an exhortation or a correction, the onus is on you to stop and hold off that correction until you can do so with a loving heart and in a loving manner. Think about what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, or by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. This is a tandem command. We speak the truth and we speak it in love. We do them both. We do them together. And if we don't do one, we really need to be careful about doing the other. You could be as loving as you possibly can to somebody, but if you're not speaking the truth, you are doing them harm and you're sinning against the Lord. The flip of that is true as well. You can speak the truth until you're blue in the face, but if you do it without love, you're nothing but a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. We speak the truth in love. So what is Peter about to do? He's about to speak the truth. He's about to speak hard truths. He is not going to hold back 
in really the next two chapters as he instructs these saints and tells them some very difficult things of how they must live and how they must bear up under suffering in difficult circumstances. He's going to speak the truth, but he does it markedly in love. We speak the truth in love. So Peter says, Beloved, I urge you. I urge you. We've already talked about urgency. Urgency is is really the kind of one of the the key thrust of this passage, the importance and urgency of these commands. But let's talk about it a little bit more directly in what he says. The word urge is the Greek term parakaleo. It might be something you're familiar with. It's a word that literally means to call to one side. So it can have the idea of exhortation. It can have the idea of comforting or encouraging. It, it really can be a call to action, depending on the context. In this context, obviously, it is a call to action. It is a strong exhortation. Now, some of you may know, we think about the word parakaleo. There is a direct tie-in to the work and the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Jesus said he would send to his disciples the helper, the Greek term, the parakletos. There, there's a, a linking and a join of the idea of parakaleo and the parakletos. The, the Holy Spirit, in some ways, is known as the paraclete. He is the one who comes alongside of us. He exhorts us. He helps us. He comforts us. So when you think about that in the context of Peter's exhortation here, you understand that what he is about to exhort can only be carried out in one way. And that is by walking in the Spirit. You can try to abstain from the fleshly lusts that wage war against your soul and your own strength, and you will fall flat on your face, and you will fail. You can try to keep your behavior excellent as you live among the Gentiles, and if you do that in your own strength, you will fail. So Peter says, I urge you, walk by the Spirit and resist the lust of the flesh. And then Peter gives kind of a, an undergirding, uh, an immediate basis and grounding for this context, for this, for this exhortation. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Aliens and strangers. This takes us back to the introduction, to the beginning of his letter, where he says he's writing to those who reside as aliens who are scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor. These are saints likely living in a foreign land. The, the, the church had been dispersed in this time due to persecution. But much more pointedly than that, these are saints who are living in a world that is not their home. These saints are foreigners in the world because they are only on a journey. They are on a pilgrimage to their eternal home. And friends, that should bring such great comfort to know that this world is not our home. This world is not the end for us. This is but a fleeting moment as the Lord takes us on the path to eternity, where he will bring us as his people into his presence. So that, this is the idea that undergirds Paul or Peter's exhortation here. He's about to give this strong encouragement, and he reminds these beloved saints, this is not your home. The suffering that I'm commanding you to walk into, to face, the, the battle that you will fight, 
It's only temporary. You're fighting this battle for what in, in the span of eternity is less than a blink of an eye. And this mindset and this understanding is critically important to the Christian life. In this life and in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. But when Jesus promised that to his disciples, what else did he say? But take heart. Take heart because I have overcome the world and this is not your ultimate end. In Christ, we have a great and a sure hope. It is a fixed hope that binds up our weaknesses, that strengthens our feeble knees in the days of, of the most difficult trials and circumstances and persecutions. We are undergirded as God's people by being reminded that this world is not our home. Sorrows will come. Difficulties, both physical and spiritual, will surely come upon you. You will even lose the battles uh, in your fight against sin. You will be tempted and you will fall to temptation. But, beloved, this is all only temporary. This light and momentary affliction, as Paul would say, is only storing up for you eternal glories beyond comprehension. We, we have to take heart in that. We have to be strengthened with that eternal view because otherwise the trials of life, as so many of you can attest to, would overwhelm you. The, the grief that we can walk in would be absolutely unbearable if not for the hope of Christ. So in your moments of sorrow... Look to your future glory with Christ. In moments of temptation, remember that you must fight against that sin. You must wage war against the flesh. But you will one day be made perfect. You will one day be freed not only from the power and the penalty of sin, but also its presence. The battle comes to an end. And when the spiritual battles rage, when you fight battles against physical, earthly powers that are brought about from the power of Satan, remember that Christ is on the throne. Christ reigns, and one day you will reign with him because you are a stranger and an alien in this world. So that's the setup. Peter says, beloved, I urge you as strangers and aliens. That that sets up the exhortation, the, the command that he's about to give. So what does he say then? He says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. There is urgency in godliness and in obedience when you consider the fact that there are lust and fleshly battles that rage and are waged against your soul. To abstain means to be moved away from something, to be separate from something, to, to be taken and set away from something, and then to remain away from that. So there's kind of uh, two pieces to this idea of abstaining. You must be moved into the position of being away from sin. That's what Jesus did for us at the cross. 
right? We are taken and counted as righteous. Our sins, are the, stain, the stain of our sins is washed away. The penalty, the punishment was taken. And positionally, we are sanctified. We are justified before God for all eternity. But that positional sanctification must work into our lives. We're not sanctified so that we remain in sin. The, the sanctification that we have and know in Christ is worked into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. The one who is raised in Christ is a new creation. In Christ, you are a new creature. You have new desires. You have new passions. You have new affections. You desire to please the Lord rather than pleasing the flesh because you are made new in Christ. But you must not only be made new, you must stay new. You must walk in newness of life. You walk in that newness of life by putting off sin and putting on Christ. We praise the Lord for positional righteousness in our justification in Christ. If it were not for that, we would have no power to fight against sin. We are dead to the flesh and alive in Christ, and then we are filled with the Spirit, and then we walk in righteousness. So we must not become complacent in our position. While the Lord has changed our heart, we must make war against the flesh that remains. You are still in the body of this death where the flesh tries to attach itself to you and fight you and drag you down into sin. We must put on, as Paul says in Romans 13, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. So not only are we positionally sanctified, but we must be progressively in the here and now sanctified. We must abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And that's kind of the, the waging war against the soul is kind of the why behind this command. We abstain from the lust of the flesh because they are battling against us. James 4 tells us that it's the desire for pleasure that causes strife and division among the members of God's people. It's that desire to fulfill the desires of the flesh that cause division within God's people and cause strife in your own personal life. Your desire to please the flesh will be at war with God's spirit in you. We know that from Galatians chapter 5. Paul wrote there, But I say, walk by the spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. There's that battle, that tension that your flesh wars against the Spirit of God within you, so you're caught in this tension. And I think what we would see you know, when we studied Galatians chapter 5, what we saw is there's that tension because it causes dependence upon the Holy Spirit. We're new in Christ, and if we just had victory all the time, then we would, of course, be puffed up in our, in our victory and not rely on God's Spirit. But we have this constant battle, this constant war against the flesh, because then we must rely on the Spirit. If you are fighting a war, you must rely on the Spirit 
to win that spiritual battle. Your sin nature is defeated, but the sinful flesh is still there, and it wages war. You must take up the armor of God and fight back against the war that Satan wages on you as a child of God. So we see the urgency of our obedience in this this battle against the flesh. But we also see that we're aliens and strangers on a journey toward our eternal home. So there is this, this concern, this reverent fear kind of that we have toward the battle that we fight. But then there's this eternal hope that we have God's Spirit in us and He will see us through until our salvation is brought to its completion. We are being fitted for heaven while we are being conformed to the image of Christ. You're washed in his blood. You're conformed to his image because one day you will be made like your Savior. So put off sin. Wage war against the flesh because one day you will be perfected and you will no longer battle the flesh. So walk in what the Lord has for you in eternity. So obedience is urgent because the flesh wars against us. Obedience is also urgent because the world hates us. The world hates us. Look at verse 12. Peter writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we kind of break up verse 12 into two parts. The first part saying that the world hates us and, and how that affects our mindset and the life that we pursue in Christ. Peter says we must keep our behavior excellent. Behavior speaks of a walk of a way of life. He's saying that in the way that you conduct your life, in the manner and the order of your heart, your behavior, your morals should be excellent. So again, as Clark said this morning, there, there is nothing legalistic in that idea of walking in obedience. Scripture is so utterly clear. We are to behave, we are to order our lives in a morally right way. The Bible is the standard of all morality, so we are to order our lives according to Scripture and walk in submission to God's Word. The overall direction of our lives must be morally excellent. Peter has already exhorted his readers to wage war in the spiritual realm. In your heart, you fight that battle. But we also see that that battle does not end in the heart. It it does not end in you saying, hey, I fought the battle. I have the right desires, but I still just do the wrong thing. I I still just walk in the sin. No, your behavior, the, the way of your life is to be morally excellent. And there's reasons for that as we continue on in verse 11. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles, Calvin made an interesting point here that I think helps kind of tie this together as we think about the bigger picture of this text. Calvin said that the Jews were 
not only were they hated everywhere, but they were almost abhorred. They were just utterly despised by all people. And he said, the more carefully, therefore, ought they have labored, labored to wipe off the odium and the infamy attached to their name by living a holy life and having a well-regulated conduct. The Jews were a hated people, and these that Peter are writing to are Jewish Christians. They were effectively doubly hated because Christians were hated just like Jews were hated. So they were hated for their Jewish heritage, and they were hated for their Christian faith and religion. Calvin concluded that the evil speakings and the wicked insinuations of the ungodly ought to stimulate us to live an upright life, for it is no time to live listlessly and securely when they sharply watch us in order to find out whatever we do amiss. The world is watching, he's telling these readers, the world is watching you to see when you fall in sin, and as anyone who's walked with Christ, who's ever had somebody come up against you for your Christian faith, you know that they will immediately bear arms against you when you do the slightest thing wrong. They look, they scour, they dig. It's like in, in political runnings where people just go to the deepest extent to find anything that somebody has done wrong. That's what the world does to believers. That's what those who hate righteousness and hate those who follow Christ will do to you. So keep your behavior excellent. Live in such a way as to give them no ammunition when they come to wage war against you and to slander you as an evildoer. Dear friends, we must be on guard. We must be on guard. You must understand that everything you do is going to be scrutinized by many people, but especially the lost. If you try to share the gospel with somebody when they've observed your life and you've not been walking with Christ, and we'll get to this more in a second, they're immediately going to bow up against you and point out every single one of your faults. Now, we have a recourse to that, and that is humility, confessing our sin and reminding those people that we are forgiven in Christ, but don't give them that ammunition by walking in sinful ways. Keep your behavior excellent. Live a moral life. Live your life in accordance with the truth of Scripture. And we see what will be that attack of the world. Peter specifically tells us that in the thing in which they slander you as evil doers, what is the operation of the world against the followers of Christ? They will slander you as an evil doer. They call what is good evil and what is evil good. Those who love their sin hate holy living because holy living shines a light on sin. Jesus said as much in John chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So what is the response of the world to those who practice truth and to the truth and those who practice righteousness? For one, they run from it. The world tries to hide from that which is true and right and pure and good. 
They try to stay in the darkness so their deeds will not be exposed. But then, what happens when, when they can't? When, when the space in the corner runs out and the light is shining on them, what are they going to do? They're going to slander you as an evildoer. They will make war against those who walk in righteousness and try to do anything they can to cut your legs out from under you. That is the way of the world. They hate righteousness because they love their sin. They hate righteousness because it exposes the immorality and the selfishness and the ugliness and the wickedness of their hearts and their lives. What the world identifies as good is often, most often, evil. And what the world, as, as we see every day, what the world identifies as evil is good. The protection of a baby in its mother's womb is good and just and right. The evil of the agenda of the political left is just that. It is evil and vile and wicked and an abomination to God. But the world says it's good. And if you buck up against that, the world will hate you and malign you and slander you and persecute you. But regardless of the world's response, Peter has but one exhortation. Keep your behavior pure. Live in a right way, and then when you're attacked for living in the right way, don't give in to that temptation to bow up against evil people. You stand your ground and do and say what is right. You, As we said earlier, you speak the truth in love. So when you're slandered as an evildoer for living righteously, you don't respond with anger or, or in any other sinful way. You respond by speaking the truth in love. Sometimes you respond with silence. Sometimes it, you, you just, uh, it has to be the time where you kind of cut things off and there is no response. But if you are going to speak when you are slandered for doing what, what is right, you have but one choice. Speak the truth in love. Keep your behavior pure. Be holy as he who called you is holy. So in the urgency of obedience, we've seen that the flesh wars against us and that the world hates us, but this all kind of builds up to this ultimate summary at the end of verse 12 where we see that God is glorified in us. God is glorified in the way that we pursue obedience. Again, look at verse 12, that you will be slandered as an evildoer, but you keep your behavior excellent, so that they who slander you may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So there's a bit of interpretive challenge here to, to kind of build up into, into this final statement of what is the day of visitation? When when Peter writes of the day of visitation, are we talking about a day of salvation or are we talking about a day of judgment? Because that idea can speak to both in Scripture. And I, th I think on one hand, we could simply say, yeah, it's both. Because as we are uh, Calvinistic in our believing and interpreting of the Bible, we, we understand from Romans chapter 9 that God makes vessels for wrath and vessels for mercy. God is glorified in exercising his wrath on sinners, and he's glorified in bringing salvation 
to those who are his objects of mercy. So we could just say both. It, it could be an either or, but it's not always a, a helpful way to interpret the scriptures. So let, let's look. There, I think we can get some contextual clues and come up with an answer as we consider this in light of other New Testament passages. Turn with me, if you will, back to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, um, this is the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is proclaiming glorious truth. And look at verse 14, and we'll read through verse 16. This is Jesus again speaking. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we see this idea similar to Peter about glorifying God at the observation of good works in other people. Now we ask the question, is there anything speaking to judgment in what Jesus is, is preaching in that part of Matthew chapter 5? I, I think the answer is no. Uh, what we see there is Jesus talking about salvation, about those who see the good works of others and they glorify God because they are saved, because they are in Christ. So what is the result of the light of these good works and the glory of God? It is salvation. And then we could just kind of consider generally, I think, um, and, and MacArthur is helpful in this, the idea of a visitation in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's really just often very clear when visitation of the Lord refers to judgment. The context around it is crystal clear when it's speaking of a visitation of judgment. And there are cases in the New Testament of the visitation of the Lord being salvation. In Luke chapter 1, verse 68, uh, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, there says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. So the visitation of the Lord contextually there was redemption. It was salvation. And I think at this point you understand that I believe 1 Peter 2, the glorifying God on the day of visitation is glorifying God in the visitation of salvation. Because the context doesn't give us any hints about judgment. So when we think about that, what do we do? What is our response? You know, we talk a lot about when we study the scripture, we come to a point where we say, so what? What does that do in our lives? How does that affect us? And what we see is that the Lord uses the obedience of his people in calling sinners to salvation and to repentance. And does the Lord need our obedient lives to save sinners? No, absolutely not. The Lord is in the heavens. He does as he pleases. You could walk in sin the rest of your life, and the Lord will still be on his throne, and he will still save whomever he chooses. Will the Lord bless your evangelistic efforts if you are habitually living in sin? No, probably not. The, the Lord is not going to bless those who walk in sin. 
Calvin summarized about this. He said, God employs the holy and honest life of his people as a preparation to bring back the wandering to the right way. God uses the holy life of his people to call his sheep to himself. Both the wandering sheep who need to be called to a renewed repentance and to those who have not been yet brought into the sheepfold. MacArthur offered an even more pointed summary here. He said, effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. Listen to that again. Effective evangelism flows from the power of a righteous life. God does not need you for the gospel to be effective. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, not your righteousness, not your obedience. It is the gospel. But the Lord uses people as instruments, as tools. We are are like a server bringing the, the food to the table. We, we are God's agents in proclaiming the good news of Christ, and he uses righteous living to bring condemnation, to, to bring that sense of sinfulness to sinners when we proclaim the gospel to them. So you ask yourself, do you, do you want to evangelize effectively in the workplace? Do you want to evangelize effectively in your family, both in the home and in the broader context of your family? Do you want to evangelize effectively in our community here in the town of Arab? I think the text of Scripture before us tells us that there's but one thing that we need to ensure that we pursue alongside of proclaiming the gospel, and that is to be known for righteous living. The world knows us by our love for one another, and they will know us by the way that we live our lives. Do you proclaim a gospel that, by the evidence of your life, is powerless to save and to transform? Or do you proclaim a gospel and live in such a way that the gospel is seen as the power of God to give you new life? Do you keep your behavior excellent before the world so that they see your good deeds and turn to your Savior? Do you live in such a way that, that the Lord is glorified, not that people look and say, oh, what a good person you are, but oh, what a mighty God that person who preaches the gospel serves because the gospel is powerful. We preach a gospel that transforms. It's not a gospel that just takes you and acts as a fire insurance policy to, to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. It is a transforming gospel that changes lives. Preach that gospel and live that gospel. As the world slanders you, stand firm. As the world hates you and treats you as an evildoer, stand firm and live in a way that showcases Christ. So in conclusion, dear friends, or as Peter says here, beloved, I urge you on the authority of Holy Scripture to keep yourself pure. Abstain from the lust of of the flesh. Make war against the flesh and the power of the Holy Spirit.
I urge you, dear friends, that no matter the insult, no matter the slander, no matter the persecution or the hatred that you face, keep your behavior excellent. Live in such a way that people see Christ in you no matter what the world may throw at you. You may walk in all kinds of difficulties, and your call is to show Christ. Let them see through you and let your life be a reflection of the Savior who saved you. And dear friends, as we do this, may we remember and may we live in light of the fact that we are aliens and strangers. We are those who are on a pilgrimage. We are on a journey that goes to our eternal home. That is, it should be so strengthening as you get up and wage war against sin and against evil every day to know that that battle is temporary the trials that you will walk through are temporary they are hard they they will crush you if not for god's grace and the power of his spirit working in and through you but thank the lord his grace is sufficient his power is perfected in our weakness and the Lord uses all those things in our lives as we rely on His grace, as we walk in the Spirit. He uses those things to point the world to Christ. They see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So friends, may we be steadfast. May we be immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in Lord, may we walk by the power of his spirit and in his ways for his glory. Let's close in prayer.